marketing was intriguing because it was so controversial. You know, there was high quality marketing that made a really great impression on me. And there was also, as you said, BS marketing, which ended up being under the hat of like brand awareness, very vague concepts that didn't really make sense to business owners who were working with marketers in order to, you know, improve the results of their business that were very measurable. And I think marketers started offering these, um, these very vague viewpoints of what they could do without the metrics and the data behind. And this made people very distrustful. Bonjour, bonjour. Welcome to everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Everyonehatesmarketer.com is a podcast for digital marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I interview no-nonsense marketers who are not afraid to cut through the bullshit and say things as they are. So during this show, we learn how to get more visitors, more leads, more customers, more long-term profit by using good marketing, by treating people the way we like to be treated. Uh, head over to everyonehatesmarketers.com to subscribe to the email list. Uh, we'll, be, we'll notify you before anybody else of our future guests. Uh, you'll also help us to come up with great questions for the future guests. Uh, you'll also get access to uh, the numbers in terms of number of listens and downloads of the podcast. And also, quite simply, to have great one-to-one conversation if you need any help. In episode 15 of everyonehatesmarketers.com, I'm talking to Monica Georgiev. Monica is the marketing director for Carbonized. So Carbonized is a very interesting piece of software that uses the, the Kanban methodology. Uh, if you're not familiar with Kanban, it's a highly visual way to organize yourself and your team um, to manage projects and execute on, on stuff. And it has been uh, invented by Toyota. So The way we describe the software is basically Trello on steroids. They do things a little bit more in a more powerful manner, tracking things that Trello doesn't do and plenty of other features that Trello doesn't have. And in this episode, we are going to go through how to apply Kanban to marketing. So how to make your marketing more lean, how to make your marketing more efficient. So it's a highly practical episode with a lot of takeaways. So I would suggest you to take notes during this episode because there's a lot to take in. So Monica is going to go through, you know, how to apply Kanban to marketing. She's going to give you examples on how to do that in your team or if you are on your own. And finally, there's one thing in this episode that is really mind-blowing is, is a metric that marketing teams and marketers have, haven't really measured ever. And it's a metric that she's going to go through and uh, explain how to, how to actually measure to make your, your team more efficient. So that's actually really powerful as well. So as usual, have a listen and let me know what you think. Hi, Monica. Welcome to the show. Hi, Louis. Thanks for the invitation. You're very welcome. Um, so to prepare this, this interview with you, I did take a look at your Twitter profile and LinkedIn profile and get to know you a little bit better. We had a a few conversations before, but I wanted to know a little bit more about you. And I've noticed that one thing that you really love doing is, is to travel quite a lot. So instead of talking about marketing straight away, what I'd like to ask you is, is there something really weird hap that happened to you while you were traveling or a very good story that you like to tell others uh, around your travels? Oh boy, I'm glad that my Twitter profile is giving that impression to people. I do travel quite a lot. I wish I could do even more of it. Um, recently, the last place I was um, was Malta. 
And uh, one story that I will never forget because it was really high adrenaline, it was really unexpected, was the bus drivers there are, you know, they wish they were in Formula One somehow. I don't know how these young men, professional drivers, it turned out, because I was speaking to one of them, um, started driving buses in Malta. And so they drive twice the limit, all of them. And because it's an island, you always have the feeling that you're going to to actually, you know, go off of the edge at some point into the water. But um, this is sort of part of their culture, I think. Um, our Airbnb host, when I was there, told us that uh, Maltese people like adrenaline, which I didn't know. And so we were driving with the bus driver, and he spoke very little English, and he said... I'm a, I'm a former Formula One driver, and I like adrenaline, and this is why we're driving so fast. I had to get off the bus, but yeah, at the end of the day, this is a, a takeaway for Malta. If anyone's going, don't get on a bus. How long did you last in the bus? Um, it took about five minutes for me to realize that I would be walking. Uh, there's no, I don't think there's Uber in Malta, so we ended up having to take a cab. It's strange that cars somehow drive quite uh, quite slowly on the roads because the bus uh, the buses have their own lanes so they they can be quite reckless that way but the cars are constantly in traffic so it's impossible to actually go above you know 50 and where you... there where there are more people in the bus other than you The bus was actually full of tourists, so everyone was was pretty much, um, you know, at the end of their wits and uh, was about to get off with me. I sort I started a little bit of a trend. I think a group of people <laughs> came off. They were French, actually, and I I think the French are quite adventurous. But it turns out, no, <laughs> not uh, that. They like their life that. as well. They they enjoy live uh, life a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, you started a trend there. People started to leave the bus, and then did you walk together? Or did you just leave? Well, we, we had a quick, uh, you know, exchange of looks about why we were all off the bus. And uh, we were a bit lost because we understood that now we were off the bus, we felt safe, but we were also in the middle of nowhere. So it uh, it became a little bit of a pilgrimage to we were going to Medina, which is the old capital of Malta. It's a little bit of a fortress on a hill. So there was a, a community element there. A, a new community was formed. <laughs> Of people afraid for their life. <laughs> well, I knew you had a good story. Um, <laughs> this is exactly why I asked you. Right, so let's go back a little bit about you and, and talk about uh, who you are uh, as a person. Uh, is there any particular event in your childhood or in your life that made you who you are today? Something that really summarized very well your personality? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm originally from Bulgaria, so um, my parents ended up immigrating to Canada in 2001, and I was six. So I haven't been to a Bulgarian school at all, um, and I ended up um, being educated in Canada. So I have a very different um, bicultural mindset um, or multicultural mindset, so to speak. Um, so when I came back to Bulgaria two years ago, um, this immigration that happened so long ago, and I hardly you know, remember it very much, I wasn't quite an adult then, um, turned into this really definitive story. And it ended up, um, you know, being part of the career path I chose. It ended up being part of um, the community I created around myself, my friends. And everyone uh, that's close to me now, turns out, has been living um, elsewhere for most of their life and then returned back to Bulgaria. But they're all originally from here. I think there was just a mass exodus at some point 
um, because uh, of you know economic reasons, the country wasn't doing very well. And I think uh, a lot of people ended up immigrating to the States and Canada and then coming back right around um, 2014 or or after Bulgaria became part of the European Union. <laughs> so I think um, I think that's um, that's uh, something that definitely made me who I am today, I guess. That's that's that was my next question. The reason why you came back, and I guess you answered it. So Bulgaria joined the European Union in 2014. And so you no, it no. actually joined in 2007. Uh, it's, seven. Uh, yeah, that's when people started coming back. I came back in 2014 with a lot of uh, a lot of people around me. So um, by that point, I think a lot of um, institutions um, and sort of organizations have come into play that um, created a really nice startup environment um, for new companies to grow. So I think that's that's one of the reasons that people started coming back. And do you go back to, to Canada often? My family still lives there, so I do, um, at least once a year. And the, the difference is striking. <laughs> What do you mean? Well, I, I find that uh, in Canada there's a lot of examples of success, um, whereas in Bulgaria people didn't, uh, weren't really allowed to have their own private businesses for a very long time because it was socialist. Um, so everything was government-owned. And people are just now here discovering that they can have private business and develop it on their own terms. Uh, whereas in Canada, this has always been the case. It's always been very, uh, very tolerant of um, initiatives and, and goals that people had, personal goals and professional goals. So I think, um, I think that's part of the difference between the two countries that are really, that really shocks me every time. And more concretely, let's say you bring a, a Canadian who doesn't know anything about Bulgaria. What do you think is going to be the, the most surprising thing when he or she goes to, to Bulgaria for the first time? I've actually done that. Um, several of my friends from Canada have actually come to Bulgaria on vacation. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, they were asking, do you guys have toilets there? <laughs> Which is a really weird question, because obviously we do. Um, and and all sorts of, of questions that were really sort of uninformed, because Bulgaria was so closed off for such a long time. And so when a Canadian comes here, they're really surprised by um, how much the startup community has grown, um, how well aware people are of global trends in all industries and how um, how much grit they have I think is something that really surprises people and do you think this grit is coming from the fact that they were their parents at least were unable to to do that like to be to, to live in a, a capitalist world they had to to live by the the rule of the government and when they were able to be free per se they really mm -hmm. took this opportunity uh, with both hands right Yeah, I absolutely think that. Um, I, there's this quote I really like. I always forget who said it, but um, it says that um, children develop the qualities that could have saved their parents. So I think the next generation, the generation that is now growing um, new business and taking on different initiatives that are more international, um, is developing qualities that they th seem to think that their parents never had the opportunity to cultivate. So I think it's... Um, But it's an exciting time 
And I think a lot of interesting innovations are happening because of that, that people are, are carpe DMing all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> nice verb. I uh, actually came across quite a lot of uh, Bulgarian startup recently. Uh, one of them is uh, Enhanced CV. Another one is yours, uh, Carbonize. Also came across one called Metrilo, which is a marketing software, like sort of a CRM marketing software. Yeah, we so know I, each other, yeah. Of course, <laughs> yeah. So I, I suppose the community in Bulgaria, the startup community must be quite uh, vibrant and and it could be it's probably quite nice uh, to be there at this time um to develop the the country really yeah i think uh companies like these that are becoming more visible on the global market are really sort of changing the narrative when it comes to bulgaria so uh, um different audiences are becoming more aware of the types of of companies that are growing here and they're changing the way that they look at the country i i've um heard bulgaria called um what was it the the silicon valley of the balkans i'm not sure i agree quite yet <laughs> but i think we're well on our way and i think that'll continue to happen exponentially as time goes on there is a rule anyway every single city country and and region would call themselves the silicon valley of something uh <laughs> like in dublin they call themselves the silicon valley of of europe or whatever yeah it happens everywhere um there's only one silicon valley so um but <laughs> it's true and 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 without talking about prejudice or anything like this i didn't know a lot about bulgaria until two years ago, where I basically never really met any Bulgarians before. And then when I got involved in, in startup a little bit more and marketing way more than before, I started to meet more and more uh, people from Bulgaria. And one thing that struck me that, you know, I didn't even think about is, was the actual level of English that they had compared to the French, for example, where, <laughs> whereby almost all the people I talked to had perfect English, almost perfect English compared to mine or compared to to what I used to, to what I'm used to in, in France. Uh, so that was nice as well. I think your English is quite well um, off, but um, here, because the the language is Bulgarian, um, and it's, uh, it's not French or Spanish or English, it's not one of the more um, common languages that can be found in a lot of different countries or that people typically learn or know at all. So we're sort of... You know, in order to be competitive or communicate with um, with different people, um, English is something that gets uh, learned very early on in order to have uh, more, a bit more opportunities, I guess, in that respect. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I think that's probably the reason why. Um, so let's move on to marketing and the subject of this of this episode. Um, you're the, the head of marketing for Carbonize, and we're going to talk about this product a little bit more during the, the, the call and how it can help marketers. But first of all, I'd like to come back to the subject of, of, of the podcast itself, which is the marketers who are, are sick of marketing bullshit, right? They really want to, they, they fear that marketers have a bad reputation and they want to fix that. They want to, to improve uh, marketing's reputation and impact in the world. So mm -hmm. from your perspective, based on your experience, why do you think marketers still have a bad reputation? 
Well, uh, having seen this from the third perspective, because I wasn't always a marketer, um, I actually graduated literature. So I thought I was uh, going to be, you know, a writer or a journalist or something like that. Um, marketing was intriguing because it was so controversial. You know, there was high quality marketing that made a really great impression on me. And there was also, as you said, um, BS marketing, uh, which ended up being under the hat of like brand awareness, very vague concepts that didn't really make sense to business owners who were working with marketers in order to, you know, improve the results of their business that were very measurable. And I think marketers started offering these, um, these very vague viewpoints of what they could do without the metrics and the data behind. And this made people very distrustful. Of, of what results marketers could actually get because marketing is expensive. There's a lot of different, um, different paths that you can go and a lot of different things that you can create that are under the, the umbrella of marketing, you know, so to speak. Um, and many of them can't be measured as much as someone who's hired a marketer or is working with a marketing team or a marketing agency would like. So I think that's what ended up happening. If people were getting um, data back and results, they were happy and marketing got a good reputation. But then when someone had occasion to work with marketers who said, well, this billboard cost half of your marketing budget, what was the result? I can't really say. I think people were left with um, with a bad taste in their mouth <laughs> when it comes to marketers. So maybe there's, and I, I, I think people tend to be more vocal about negative experiences than they are about positive experiences. So when you start working with um, with marketers who can't give you data, um, you become, you know, a non-believer. And for, for the, let's say, the general public, so people that are not involved in business or marketing per se, why do you think they, they don't really like you know, advertisers or marketers or, or people in this type of industry? Mm -hmm. I think uh, people don't like to be sold to blatantly. Um, they prefer to gain value first and then give you permission to, to give them more of that value that's relevant to them personally. Um, and they want you to be consistent with that. So if you blast an ad off in any direction in a non-targeted way, then you're hitting a public that is not interested and is really, you know, um, allergic to spam now. So if, if marketers or advertisers are, are spammy and a lot of them are, um, I think people get really turned off. And they don't want to, um, they don't want to participate. On the other hand, if you're able to create value for that person, I think they're, they're going to give value back. And this will create a type of relationship that is positive as opposed to negative. But it's, it's a bit more difficult. It takes more time. And I think it, it takes a lot more customization on the end of the marketers. Um, and I don't think a lot of people in that field are ready to, um, to sort of, uh, put that time in the time that it takes to create value for many different target groups. You mentioned, you mentioned the two or three bad, like bad practices already, um, in, in, in this, this question, but I wanted to ask you in more detail, have you heard of best, like so-called best practices in marketing that you think are just plain wrong? 
Um, I've pretty much heard it all. <laughs> um, I uh, am the head of a content marketing team. So for us, bad practices or, you know, best practices in brackets, uh, we've been sold a lot of those that don't work. And one of them was, um, it turns out, Black Hat SEO, buying domains and then, um, you know, PBNs and all that stuff. And in the beginning, um, because our team is quite young, so um, we were learning and everyone sold this as, you know, the best way to boost um, your results really quickly. And it turns out that there is no one size fits all solution and there is no one off this will catapult you into like your best results yet and your best traffic. There is no such thing. And so we, we never ended up pursuing it, but um, people in the SEO world, particularly when it comes to marketing, were, were offering a lot of services like that and link building that would disappear after a couple of, uh, of months. Just uh, the, the public blog net network would... Um, uh, would collapse and then all of the links that you've built and paid for, which is the way that they were working back then, um, would eventually just disappear. So uh, these are very specific examples, but yeah. yeah, yeah. But SEO is, is, is an, in, is an industry, I mean, a, an industry of marketing that is quite known to have a lot of so-called best practices that are not best practices. Um, outside of SEO, have you, is there anything more related to marketing itself that you've heard that kind of boils, boil, boils sorry, your blood that annoys you? Um, well, we were getting a lot of tips in the beginning about uh, widening the reach of our channels, so not really targeting particular um, particular potential customers, just sort of creating more awareness about who we were anywhere. Um, because it was, you know, we, four years ago, we were relatively unknown and Kanban, which is the field that we're in, um, is not really popular on a local level. So everyone was just saying, shout at the top of your lungs about what you do everywhere, wherever you go and, um, you know, hope for the best. And I think, um, that's not a good tactic for a startup and it's not a good tactic for, um, for a large company or an enterprise either, because that means that you're wasting so much of your resources on people that might not be your target at all and might not care and might even be annoyed that you're, that you're taking that approach to them that is not personal, um, and is not really addressing their particular needs. So I, I'm not a fan of like the elevator pitch whatever elevator you're in. If you're in the right elevator, then it's fine. It's great. But if you're in the wrong elevator, then you're actually, you know, damaging your reputation. Um, and I think it's, you have to be very mindful of, of the audience that you're talking to and the, the types of people you're with. Um, so I think that's, you know, in brackets, a best practice that really boils my blood because, um, I think a lot of companies end up, uh, stumbling that way or even like tripping. <laughs> It's tough because it's never about you. It's never about your solution. It's always about your customers. And that's one of the most difficult parts as a marketer is to be able to really empathize and say, ask yourself the question, would they even care in the first place? You know, um, in a normal daily life conversation, I don't know where I heard that, but I found that really interesting. When you talk to somebody in real life about them and get to know them better, you never, you never start by giving them the solution straight away. You never start by talking about what they should be doing before listening to their problems. Sure. You would always say, you know, how are you? What's keeping you up, what's keeping you up at night? 
you know, is, isn't there anything I can help you with? That kind of questions, right? And then you start to actually, after listening, you start to actually give them the advice that they need or that you think that they need. And, and in marketing and business in general, it seems like we forget this very simple rule, right? Yeah, I think people people tend to come across like they're trying to push their own goals, but they're not really listening about, you know, the goals of the person in front of you. And um, recently we were talking about SLA agreements um, or service level agreements, I mean, SLAs, um, and whether one should include weekends in um, in their metrics for that. <clears throat> for example, if a customer request comes in on Friday and you get it done on Monday, you did it the next day. But that's not true because if you're coming from the perspective of the customer, it actually took two days and a half, for example, for them. And they've been waiting on the other end. So in that respect, you have to count the weekends because if you're really coming from the perspective of the customer, then you need to be aware that they're counting. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Especially if, if you find out that those people work weekends or use your product weekends, you have to personalize the experience and making sure that they get the best, uh, the best out of it. There's a good, uh, I mean, it's a very well-known software company, Basecamp, but they, they provide support. You send them an email any time of the day or night, and I think it's every day of the week, including weekends. You send them an email and they'll answer within five minutes. Wow. And it's absolutely insane. Uh, that they're able to do it, but they do it smartly. They, they categorize the support request, first of all. So they ask a few questions to categorize, you know, what you're asking. And then they probably have a lot of pre-written questions, uh, pre-written answers to each question, but still manually, there's somebody behind that actually send this email. Um, and that, 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 I mean, that takes it to the, to the next level, but uh, it's really they've listened to their customers and they want to provide the best in class, best in class customer service, which is quite amazing to see. Um, so we talked about marketing, we talked about the impact that it has on people and how people perceive it. Yeah, we are mostly digital marketers. I mean, you work for, for a SaaS business and therefore most of your marketing is online. I do the same and internet is really a big, a big thing at the minute, obviously. Um, so, how do you think marketers could, could make the internet a better place? Um, we saw a lot of things recently about the internet and the privacy uh, and a lot of big companies trying to, to own some part of it. So what, what can we do on our side? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because I've I've noticed um, more and more marketers are calling themselves digital marketers because it's really there's really no choice. I mean, the internet is such a source um, of potential engagement and potential customers if if um, if that's your business. Um, and I think that marketers are in a really unique position when it comes to the internet and any digital media that they use because they're the people that are creating the content. I, I'm not sure <clears throat> that journalists, even though they do play a big role, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of marketers that are joining conversations that they weren't part of before and changing them. And I think if, um, if marketers are able to position themselves as value creators when it comes to digital and the digital space, then I think that's a really powerful position to be in. And I think that marketers are even more involved directly in their customers' lives 
um, more than before. I mean, there, there's no more, well, I think they still exist, but like Mad Men style agencies, the types that I'm thinking of, they create an ad um, based on a customer request and put it out there and they have no idea what happens. We're actually getting feedback now and really specific feedback about what people are interested in. And we can respond to that based on all the data that we now have um, and make more of what people want and what they need. And I think that that's going to create really strong relationships between marketers and the people that they're working for or with or um, and creating content for. So I think that can be positive, but it's also a really dangerous thing because, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think marketers have a responsibility to... Um, to the digital space to keep it clean of, you know, fake news and spam. I, I've read about the fake news on, on Facebook a lot and seen a lot of it, um, for example, because everyone is, is really in touch with their feeds on all social media. And I think people are getting a lot of information that way. So marketers can actually clean that space. And I think that's, that's a lot of responsibility to take on. But I, I, I believe that the space has evolved enough that we can take on that and commit to sort of being the guardians of the internet, which sounds really weird, but digital marketers sort of um, do fit into that space very well. As soon as you said that, I was thinking of the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, uh, <laughs> which is an amazing movie, by the, by the way. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, it's really good. It's really I have seen it. I have yeah. seen it. So <laughs> I'm going to be the raccoon. I don't know its name. Rocket, is it? Is, that's his name. So I'm going to be Rocket. Um, okay. Yeah, just decided. So that's an interesting thing. So the, closing the feedback loop, basically, internet allows us to to get feedback from from people much quicker, uh, and therefore we can create the things that they're looking for, not the things that we think they're looking for. Um, now I want to go back to to marketing 101, if I can say that. I want to try to give the listeners a, a sort of a step by step guide to help them uh, in certain ways uh, in their daily life. So you mentioned before uh, in this episode that you guys really um, are using Kanban as a methodology and Kanban as the main way to uh, to organize your product. I mean, you're using Kanban as the, as the core of your product, right? So let's say I'm a marketer. I'm a single marketer working for a small business. I'm the only marketer there. And I want to improve the way I work in a daily, you know, in my daily life, right? So why should I use Kanban, first of all? Well, just to, to take a step back a little bit, um, Kanban is a lean method that started in manufacturing at Toyota, um, if people are, are not familiar with the history. Um, and it moved to IT about... 10 years ago, probably. And right now it's a method that's expanding to other industries. And I think this happened organically. And the reasons that I think it happened is because Kanban is really suitable to work processes that are, that are the, the type that marketing is doing at the moment because it's, it's become more digital. So there are ways to, um, um, to structure a Kanban workflow for marketing that is really conducive to digital marketers processes. So even if you are a single marketer, um, there are ways you can use Kanban to be, first of all, more efficient, because that's one of the reasons that the method was created based on the lean principles uh, of the lean methodology. But 
I think it works even better for teams because I think there are more miscommunications when it comes to marketing teams or teams in general. And when you're working with a lot of different people, there's the topic of visibility that you need to talk about. When you're working by yourself, um, you have an opportunity to structure your process any way you want to, and you can see that. Um, you can do it on a physical Kanban board if you want in in a space that you're always in, like your office or behind you, I see a whiteboard, so maybe you can do it on that. Um, but it will always be visible to you. The point is that a Kanban helps entire teams collaborate on it, and I think that's what it's good for. Um, I think if you're, if you're looking for a personal Kanban board, um, you can use absolutely anything. And that's why I said the physical board, um, you can just make it in the, in the back wall of your office or something and have access to it. But when you're a team with, for example, remote team members, a digital Kanban board like the kind we have in Kanbanize would be a lot more useful to you. The point of Kanban in general, whether it's physical or digital, is to boost the efficiency of any member or any part of any process. Um, and the idea is to have a more predictable flow of value towards your customer or the, the end receiver of whatever you're creating or building. Um, so in our content team, for example, if you're a lone uh, content creator, planning and breaking down uh, a project for content would mean having different Kanban cards with different priorities linked to different um, external links, for example, if you're creating them for different medias. And you would map that on a Kanban board and start pulling cards to different stages of the process. So the, all the cards that you've just broken down, um, for example, you've got a large project that requires... 10 articles. Each article will be a Kanban card um, that will begin in the requested column of the Kanban board. And then in order to have a very visual process, you would pull a Kanban card into in progress when you're working on it. And one of the main principles of Kanban is that you have work in progress limits. So you can't be working on 10 items at a time because even, um, um, you know, if, if you've got if you've got 10 articles that you're working on at the same time, you won't be as efficient, right? And you'll end up wasting a lot of your time context switching between them. So the idea of Kanban is to um, not multitask on the things that you're working on in progress and only begin something new when you've completed the first item that you've begun working on. So it's it's very it's a very custom approach and it's really flexible, which is why it's I can't give... Uh, a one-size-fits-all solution for marketing teams. But what we've seen is is anything from, you know, a very basic approach, which is one person working on one Kanban board um, and working on a single project, to 50 people marketing teams collaborating with their web developers on several boards that are linked to each other in hierarchies. So cards can create, um, can be linked to each other with different relationships, which creates a portfolio scenario for marketers. So for example, a CMO would be looking at their own board with portfolio cards that are linked to smaller task cards throughout an entire project that are assigned to different members of the team. Okay, so let's go back. Let's go back one step. How does um, a, a Kanban, a basic Kanban uh, board look like from left to right? 
Right. Um, a basic Kanban, the way that it started um, in the factories of Toyota, was just a board on the wall with three columns, which were requested in progress and done, uh, and color-coded cards that would represent various tasks that needed to be done. And the cards would all begin uh, taped to the wall in the in the requested column, and then you would start moving them across the board. And when all the cards ended up in the done column, you would know that you know, those tasks were completed. And if they were linked together, they would represent an entire project. In their case, it was a car. <laughs> so the, the cards represented um, different parts of the car. And so when all the parts were, um, you know, installed, for example, um, they would end up in the done column and you would know that that one car um, was ready for shipping. And the way that you can expand that is by adding various columns to that board that represent different parts of your work process. So let's take an example to write a blog post. You would have ideas for blog posts in the far left. You would have then draft the first version, find out source images or videos, uh, what else would you have? Actually, I can I can actually uh, just really quickly go over the way that our marketing board looks because it's very similar to this. We're a content team mostly, sure. So it is quite similar. So the way that our board is structured is we have three swim lanes, which are the horizontal sections of the board. We have the main swim lane, which is um, just anything that's sort of needs to be expedited and is really urgent, and then we have a content swim lane, which is where cards that are related to content initiatives are, and a social swim lane, which is where all our social media initiatives are. Um, and so all of these swim lanes share the same columns. And our cards usually begin in the ideas column, which is in the requested section. And then when we decide that we want to undertake that task or write that blog post, for example, it goes to ready to start, which is also in the requested section. So work hasn't been begun. We've just been planning at this point. Um, the next section is in progress, which is where you're actively working on something, for example, writing or doing research. We usually label our cards um, if we're researching. Um, then we have a column that's called waiting on relative. We usually create cards for our designer in the board as well, and we link the designer card to the content marketer card. And so if the design is ready, the card for the design will go into waiting on relative until the content is completed, and then both will go into ready for review, which is a section where content gets edited um, and formatted as well. Then there's review in progress and review complete, which is when you know that you can go on to, for example, the publication stage. It depends on, on what the task is. We also have a follow-up column that's in progress. Those are for um, if you get edits back for an article and then you have to go back and implement those edits, um, that card will go back to in progress after review because it, you need to do some extra work on it. Uh, we have a column that's called tracking others as well, um, which is where our communication with external members of the team are. Um, maybe they're remote members or um, a marketing agency or they're authors for other media outlets that we're collaborating with. We also have a column that's experiment in progress, which is where we try new things and sort of these are things that are actively being tracked at the moment and we're testing to see if it works uh, and if we want to validate an approach. Because if, if it goes off the Kanban board, then, um, you know, it, it won't be visible to the team and they won't have um, 
sort of the the motivation to to check up on that. So that's how we we differentiate between what is completed and what is an experiment that's uh, that's ongoing. And then the dumb the done column is the final one, and that's where um, you know a, a content has been published and it's been promoted, and um, yeah, and gets archived basically at the end. What's important to note about different types of Kanban boards is that um, you would usually label columns based on whether they're activity or queue columns. The difference would be whether a card is actively being worked on there, whether a task is, is being completed, or that a task is waiting. For example, ready for review of an article would be a queue column because that card is just waiting for somebody to review it. Um, and waiting for somebody to take action, whereas in progress is, you know, you're actively working on this today. And so when I look at the board right now, I can I can say um, who is working on what because everything is in the in progress column. And I can do a status check on all of these cards at the same time. What I think would be really interesting is that we add a few examples of those bought in action in the show notes of this episode where whereby you can give a few examples, real life examples without necessarily showing all the tasks, but an act, actual templates that people could use uh, in their daily work. Uh, I think that could be very valuable. Absolutely. Yeah. I think at the core, Kanban is a really visual method. It's what it's good for, that it's, um, it's accessible and it's present uh, when people work on it. And that's, you know, a surefire way that you won't forget stuff and you won't, um, things won't be ignored just because they're not in front of your eyes, because the idea is that the Kanban board is, is visible and it's there. So I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk briefly about one thing you mentioned during, during your explanation, which was really interesting. So basically, if I understand it right, a, a card can actually be a board as well. So, you can have a Kanban board for the company on its own with like big projects that are in progress and you can have each project to actually be a board on its own, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the idea, Kanban has progressed from what it used to be at Toyota because it went digital, it's online, you can get analytics from this process because it's being tracked while you work, whereas manually from a physical board, you can't do that unless you're really dedicated and want to spend time tracking time on every card. Um, but, uh, the idea is that in an ideal scenario, in a big marketing team, you can have a portfolio board, which tracks all large initiatives and campaigns, which is, which makes sense for marketers. And each of those cards that represents a big project might have different children cards that are linked to it. But those cards, um, are hosted on other boards. Um, for example, you might have a content board, a web development board, um, a, a public speaking or public engagements board, a workshops board, and all of those, um, or a design board as well. And all of those cards that are, um, that are on those sub boards can be linked to the main board so that someone who is not directly associated with the day to day work process can take one brief glance and get a full idea and the full picture of what the status is. And we recently released a feature that actually shows you how many of the children cards are done so that you can get a sense, for example, if there's 20 children cards 
ads. There's two in progress and most of them are done. So you get an idea that, um, you know, that larger project and that larger card will soon go into done itself because all of the affiliate cards will be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's something I've never been able to do myself. I've used Trello before. I've used other stuff. And for some reason, I was never able to, to keep using this visual way of organizing stuff because I was getting lost in the boards and I think I probably didn't have the right methodology. So I might give it, give it a shot again. Well, I, what we use in the team and what I use for everything I do is simple to do lists, um, mm-hmm. that are linked to each other. And I, we do use buckets of, you know, where are the to do's? If they are in progress, are they done? Are they, uh, waiting for something? Uh, so it's kind of perhaps the same idea, but I guess, we do are we are missing sometimes the visual element, um, so I need to, we need to look into that again. Uh, so thanks for that all this explanation. I know it's a very visual thing and it might be a little bit difficult to explain like this of our podcast episode. But as I said, we will add more details in the podcast notes. Sure. Um, so let's talk about the future a little bit. Um, Marketers are here to stay. Uh, it's getting more and more difficult to understand people and to, and to collect data. There's much, um, like many more data points and data sources we can use almost every day. And marketers struggle to make sense out of, uh, out of it all. So what do you think marketers should learn today uh, that will help them in the next 10 years or 20 years or even 50 years? Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, you made a really good point about the loads of data that are accessible to marketers these days and how to make sense of it all. Um, I think it's it's very important that they focus on one piece of data that they often don't. Um, the marketing teams I've met don't, at least. Um, it's the data of their own efficiency internally. Because I think if you can create a team that is working at its optimal uh, on very sophisticated projects because marketers are working on on more and more integrated projects. They're working with more technology these days. They have access to developers and designers and they're sort of coordinating all of those efforts. So marketing projects, I think, have gotten um, more complex uh, with time and are very complex now and very digital. So in order to be able to track the way that they work and actually get data from their own process, we'll let them know if they're improving in-house and whether they're improving within their team or wasting the resources of their company or their external customers. Um, so I think that's super valuable and will become more valuable as time goes on. You know, you mentioned 50 years. I'm not sure what we'll be doing in 50 years, probably flying around. But um, in the context of the industry and what types of services marketers are offering, I think it's it's absolutely essential to know whether they're working um, at the best of their ability and working optimally and not wasting resources, which is, uh, you know, time and, and, um, money and whether they can do more with the number of members that they have in their team. Because I think, uh, marketers are really creative people and they get lost in that a lot. Um, but they can focus their resources in, you know, a lot of different directions and being able to make a data-driven decision about where to focus your resources is essential. And so how does one measure efficiency of their team, for example, briefly, what type of metrics should they use? 
Mm-hmm. Well, the main reason that Kanbanize basically exists is to solve this problem uh, because measuring efficiency is what everyone has been wanting to do and, and figure out how. Um, we offer a couple of ways. We actually have a super powerful analytics module behind. So the visual board is really simple to use and really simple to set up. But what's going on behind is everything that you're doing there is getting tracked in different ways. And depending on what your team is doing and how you're working, you might benefit from a lot of different um, data about your um, your process. So one of the things that we measure in our team is the ratio between how long our task cards spend waiting for someone to take action versus how long they spend being actively worked on. So that can tell us a lot about the way that our process is working, because if our cards are spending super long uh, just waiting on a designer or waiting on um, the head of marketing to review an article or something before it goes out, then that means that we need either more people or we need more time for articles or we're taking on too much. And th- there's a lot of different things you can, you can track the cycle time of cards in many different ways and actually make predictions about if you've got the same amount of tasks and you want to, for example, if a customer comes to you and says, when will it be done? And it's really difficult to answer that question if you can't predict. Um, and so in Kanban, there's a Monte Carlo simulation, which is a really, it sounds like a really complex analytic, but at the end of the day, it's just based on the way you've been working so far. And so if you can get um, data about how you're going to work in one month, and how much you're going to be done in one month, uh, based on how much you did last month, you can actually you can rule the world. I think. So you're <laughs> calling that a Monte Carlo simulation, yeah? Yeah, actually, this is. Uh, I think there's a lot of different versions of it, but the way that it exists in our analytics is um, as uh, you know, it's a graph that. Um, basically measures the way that you've been working as a historical uh, collection of data. And it makes a prediction about um, when you might be completing as many tasks and what the percentage of those tasks being completed in some time is. So when we're talking about the future, we have to be super um, probabilistic because you can't say it will absolutely be done in 10 days because you need to stand behind that with some data. And I think that's what Monte Carlo simulations try and do. Are you not a fan? <laughs> no, no, I, I am. I, it just, it's just a funny world. I, I like funny worlds. Uh, <laughs> it just surprised me, um, but it's perfectly fine. Um, it's actually the point you're making about the efficiency is actually a very good point. And this is true. I don't think I ever come across a company measuring that, or at least I wasn't aware that they were measuring that. So that's a very good point. And we certainly don't do it as scientifically as you are mentioning uh, in your explanation. So that's something I'm definitely learning today. Um, outside of Kanban and outside of, uh, of the lean marketing methodology, are there any resources um, that made you a better marketer that you would recommend to people? Uh, do you mean maybe softwares or thought leadership resources? Actually, both. If you can pick, let's say, three, could be books, it could be podcasts, could be softwares, anything at all. Okay. Um, well, I recently read a book that I do recommend. Um, it's called Hooked. It's a big yellow cover. I think it's it's gotten really popular. Uh, the author, I think, was Near Al. Um, that book really changed the way that I was approaching how to get traction with different products. And I think any marketer should read it. It's... Um, 
it's not very in-depth, but it's such a good start and actually unlocks your curiosity about a lot of different ways of, of promoting products, different types of products. And there's a lot of case studies in there that I would recommend getting to know, um, depending on your business, obviously. Uh, and I really like the HubSpot blog. I don't know if that's an advertisement for them or their service, which is very different than ours. But um, I think it taught me a lot about being combining creativity with analytical thinking, which I, I think, you know, being a literature major, I could do more of because, you know, that was a very subjective environment. But I think marketing can essentially be very objective if you wanted to. Um, third one. Oh, I just really love SEMrush. It's a software that can measure a lot of stuff about Google traffic and analytics and stuff like that uh, and your keywords. And it's it's basically for SEO, which is something we, we've gotten really good at, but it's the one software that never fails. I do recommend it. Excellent. Well, I've learned a lot from this, uh, from this episode and from talking to you. Uh, I genuinely mean that. So that was a really nice conversation. Um, where can people connect with you, learn more from you, learn more from Combinize? Um, where can they connect with you, send you emails, et cetera, et cetera? Well, you can always head to our blog, which is at com slash blog. But for um, even more day-to-day stuff, um, you can find us on Twitter at Camonize Inc., uh, you can find me at Mon Georgiev as well. Um, I don't always post about Camonize, but when when I'm posting about Camonize, it's it's cool stuff. Uh, when I'm posting about my travels, as you saw, I think it's also sort of cool. So um, yeah, I'd love it if people could connect and and give us feedback about what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong, and we love to learn and improve. So, and uh, did you release any new features recently in your in Camonize? Yes, uh, I was speaking about the very cool analytics options that you have on your board. And we recently integrated with Actionable Agile, which is um, a company that makes really powerful analytics that you can hook to different softwares, and they chose us. So um, what you can do now is get a lot more different options and with extreme accuracy about your process, which is what you know I've been sort of an evangelist of, having more information about the way that you work. Um, because one of the principles of Lean is... Um, is continuous improvement. And I really like that. Um, and I think that our new integration and our new analytics options are, can give you so many ways of improving with your team. So I think there, um, you can find more information on the site and I can tell you all about them if anyone is interested out there. And uh, that's definitely something that I'm actually interested in. I definitely need sure. to check it out because that's something we're not measuring very well at the minute. Right. Monica, it's been a pleasure to talk to. Thank you so much for all of your you insights. Too, I will share all of the notes, all of the stuff we mentioned, screenshots of Kanban boards and examples and all of that to the listeners so they can check that out. Once again, Monica, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Louis. Bye-bye. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you 
my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always unsubscribe for sure, if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet, and we always... Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.